Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. If you're a visitor with us, my name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. Uh, this is a little bit different of a Sunday. Uh, don't get engaged a lot. <laughs> Only once or twice before. Uh, I'm joking. Uh, but we're glad that you're here. And uh, we do take worship very seriously. And we take scriptures very seriously. Anyone who's been here knows that about me. Um, so I, I definitely don't want to distract from the service. Um, so we've got a great text this morning as we continue to walk through the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to dig into that. Um, if you have your Bibles, and if you don't, there's a black hardback in front of you underneath the seat. You're more than welcome to grab one. Let me invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 9. For about a year now, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. In about three years, we'll be done. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I've uh, developed a policy. I'm, I'm not seen anywhere else, but we're enacting it today, um, which is if your pastor gets engaged 10 minutes before the sermon, um, you can't judge it if it's a bad sermon, okay? <laughs> um, so we're on board with that. We're going to get that approved at the board, I hope, Matt. Um, <laughs> just get that in writing. Um, and also, I'd like to say that I dodged a bullet, because actually the next uh, weekend, the next Pastor Mark is about divorce. Uh, so, I've actually read ahead. I'm really sorry, Lindsay. I think it's supposed to be forever. Uh, it'd be easier for me, it might be harder for you. Um, a bit of a mess. Um, but we're in Mark 9, 30 to 50 today. So we'll finish up Mark chapter 9. It's a great passage because we're going to get some very interesting statements, um, somewhat confusing statements from Jesus. We'll have a lot of room to explore and really dig into what is he trying to say and communicate to us. Um, if you remember, if you haven't been with us, or if you have, just because we've been doing Mark for such a long time, let me set up the scene for Mark in as quick as I can. Um, Jesus shows up at the beginning of Mark and says, the kingdom of God is here. It's coming on earth as it is in heaven. So what had happened is God created this good creation. And it had gone astray, and the whole plan from the very beginning was for God to come back to that creation and fix it, and to redeem it. And Jesus, when he announces the kingdom of God is here, is saying the operation has started. In a sense, a war has broken out, where now the kingdom of God will battle to overcome the kingdom of the world, which we're very much familiar with, the kingdom of war, the kingdom of poverty, the kingdom of sickness, the kingdom of death. None of these were a part of God's good creation. But Jesus has come to restore all things. Um, we call this series the invasion of the Lamb for that reason. And try to get this war metaphor in our systems. Mark is full of this. This is a battle. Jesus describes his ministry as actually um, breaking and entering into Satan's household. And tying him up and then taking all of his stuff. Right? You've had control of this world for long enough. I'm here on God's part to bring it back. To his original creation. And if we keep that in mind, this passage will make a little bit more sense. Um, so let's start out, we'll read it, Mark 9, uh, chapter th verse 30 through verse 50. <clears throat> they went on from there. If you remember from last week, we had the exorcism the disciples couldn't perform, but Jesus could perform. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This is in Mark, if you're counting, our second passion prediction, where Jesus predicts, I'm going to die, 
and I'm going to resurrect. The disciples, per usual, don't understand. They did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. Now, you might wonder why they were afraid to ask. If you remember, the last time Jesus made a prediction like this, Peter did ask. Actually, he did more than asked. He told Jesus he was wrong. And Jesus called him Satan. Uh, and so the disciples at this point are probably like, it's best not to bring it up at this point, right? We don't understand, but we're not going to inquire because he seemed to really overreact that first time. Um, we keep reading. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Um, parents, no. This is not a good question, right? What were y'all talking about in the back seat? Huh? What, what was going on? Um, the disciples take the classic answer. They kept silent. Nothing, Jesus. I don't know. There's nothing going on. We're talking about sports. The, uh, you know, the, I don't know sports in the first century Judaism, so most of Maybe politics, Herod, and, and things of that nature. Um, so they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. This is your first clue that they're still not understanding Jesus' prediction. Because Jesus has told them, I'm going to the cross. That's how the kingdom's going to be put into effect. And he's already told them, you're going to the cross as well. Um, but they're still thinking, how cool is it going to be when we rule the world? I'm going to be first. You're going to be second. We might kick you off the team. They're arguing, right, about who's going to be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. He knew without them telling what they were discussing. Um, and he said to them, in a phrase that echoes in the hearts and minds of Christians, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That word servant in the Greek is doulos. It's, uh, I think, a little... Um, diluted for you in your translation. A, a, a much better translation for this is slave. Uh, someone with no rights. Right? You, if you want to be first in the kingdom, you're not seeking to get status. You're not seeking to climb the ladder. You're actually seeking to go down the ladder. To be last. To be a slave. To where your concerns don't even matter. Your whole life is owned by the world around you, taking care of them and blessing them. Um, Jesus says this. He'll say this uh, in other opportunities as well. Um, and then he takes a child. It's not the first time. Or it is the first time in Mark, but it won't be the last time. He uses a child as an example. And he put him in the midst of them. And he uh, take him, take, took him in his arms. And he said to him, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives me, not me, but he who sent me, God the Father. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not one of us. Notice very carefully the pronouns here. People are casting out demons in Jesus' name. This is a very big part of Jesus' ministry. The reason they're upset about it, and they actually try to stop these people, is the reason they give, they weren't of us. We did not know who they were. We have card-carrying disciple membership. They were just nobodies we happened across on the road. Um, Jesus is not happy about this kind of tribalism where only we can do the work of the, the, the kingdom. He said, don't stop them. Uh, this should probably be an exclamation point. This is not like a very gentle, do not stop them. This is, stop. Do not stop them. Uh, for no one, he says, who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. There's two reasons he gives. The first is kind of pragmatic. Jesus seems to say, once you start engaging in kingdom mission, 
your opportunity to leave Jesus starts to diminish. And I think that's true. The more you serve in a church, the more you serve your community, um, the harder it gets um, to, to walk away from everything um, because it gets embedded in your mind and in your soul. Um, the second reason he gives is more of a promise. Uh, he says, for the one who's not against me is for us. Um, truly, I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Um, so the first one, kind of pragmatic. The second one, a promise. Look, you're, you're trying to take away their reward. They could be giving cups of water to people in need, and I will reward them for that. That's part of the love of God breaking into the world. And then we get some more interesting, some of maybe the most interesting, confusing statements. He starts talking about sin. Whoever causes one of the little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Immediately we get one of the more violent statements of Jesus in the Gospels. If you know me and you've been around the church, you know, pretty committed to thinking that Jesus is a very nonviolent person. And he calls us to be as peaceful as possible. Probably more peaceful than we can imagine. Um, Jesus here, though, uh, maybe starts a new ministry. We might have to go out and buy some millstones, some nooses. I'm going to start keeping a register of who's causing other people to sin. Um, and then we'll get on a boat. <laughs> go out in the middle of the ocean and drown them, right? I mean, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, if you're doing things wrong in this kingdom mission, it's what's coming your way is going to be worse than if you just drowned yourself in the middle of the ocean. Um, we'll talk about this. We'll talk about this. Um, he has some more harsh things to say. Uh, if your hand causes you to sin, he says, cut it off. Invest in a hacksaw. Maybe YouTube it first to see what the best way is. Um, but cut it off. He says, it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. The idea is, look, man, it, it would be better for you to never touch your wife and never touch your kids again if it meant you would be able to enter eternal life and not lose all of life for eternity. He says it's better for you to enter life crippled with two hands and to go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, I'm not sure how that works, but even then cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and being in hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, take a spoon. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. For the worms not die, the fire is not quenched. For everyone who will be salted with fire, salt's good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Okay, what I want to do is walk through this um, passage by passage. We've got a couple different passages here. And I want to keep this war metaphor surrounding all of it, okay? Because I think it makes the most sense out of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus starts with this passion prediction. The disciples understand it. I'm honestly not convinced what Mark wants us to feel right now. Does Mark want us to be angry at the disciples? Because they're idiots. Or does Mark want us to feel sorrow for them? To feel sympathy and empathy for them? I mean, who in here can say they've not ever immediately understood what God was trying to teach them. And maybe it was years and years and years. And maybe a lot of us, myself included, God's trying to teach us stuff right now and we're still being resistant to it. I don't know what Mark intended, but I know that I feel sympathy for these guys. I mean, I, I understand 
what they're going through. Now, the interesting situation here, if you were to catalog the encounters between Jesus and, and the disciples during Mark, is that for the first part of Mark, Jesus is almost exclusively spoken in parables and metaphors, which are not meant to be taken literally. The disciples often take them literally, and Jesus has to correct them. So it's understandable the disciples have a built-in framework that Jesus says these weird things, and then we need to decipher the real meaning beyond them, right? Unfortunately, now he seems to be saying something very literal. I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again. And they go, man, what is the crazy meaning behind this, right? What is the metaphorical meaning behind this? Um, They take a literal statement, and they try to rationalize it. And they try to, to dig deeper and look for a metaphor behind it. I think this is a problem with the church. I think this is something we all struggle with. Um, we find things in scripture and we wonder, is this something we should take literally? Or is this meant to be dug deeper into? Is there something else the Spirit's trying to teach us through this than a plain sense reading of the text? I'll give you some examples. Most of you know that uh, I am very committed to enemy love. I think Jesus very clearly on multiple occasions says to love your enemies. Um, I've not been able to understand how killing an enemy or punching them or saying mean things to them is an act of love towards them. Um, I take that very literally. I don't think there's a deeper metaphor behind that, right? Um, love your enemies means love your enemies, in my opinion. You can disagree and you can interpret it differently, but, but for me, this is one of those areas people rationalize. Well, I'll love them in my heart and love everybody else so much that it is okay that I kill that person, right? Um, I don't think that's allowed. Jesus is saying, no, that person who should be killed, you do nice things to. You love and you protect and you treat them like you would want to be treated. Um, A place where most of Christianity goes metaphorical and I would say maybe we're missing out. Maybe he actually just meant that. That's a plain sense command. Um, It's funny, you know, uh, the saying in seminary is that you go and I've got a master's degree, you go and you spend hundreds of uh, thousands, tens of thousands in my case, that's really not important. It was a lot of money <laughs> uh, to, to learn advanced theology and advanced biblical interpretation. And most of what people get, the conclusion they get afterwards is, are all of our rationalizations were wrong? He meant what he said. Crap. <laughs> right? I mean, you can save a lot of money if you come to that conclusion. Jesus actually means a lot of what he says. There's not that many deeper meanings behind some of it. Um, when he tells you to love your enemy, when he tells you to bless them when they curse you, I think he actually wants you to do something nice for them after they've done something mean to you. Um, Paul reiterates this instead of the scriptures. Um, the danger of sin. Scriptures have a, the scriptures have a lot of passages about how dangerous sin is. And I think we make a mistake in the church, the Western church, because we, we often think of sin as an arbitrary legal breach of law. Uh, the same as speeding. Um, I don't think anybody in here loses sleep when they speed. Um, when they speed today. Not if you, you're going to go over the speed limit. Um, I've seen some of you at 90, 100, okay? This is why I've not put FC3 bumper stickers on the market. <laughs> I've seen your driving. And I've seen my own driving. But sin instead, I think, scripturally, should be seen as a disease, almost like a a drug addiction. 
that inherently starts to destroy you from the inside out. It's not an arbitrary punishment that, that God could say, like, well, whatever, it just won't affect you. Um, but it's like a loving parent who sees their kid start taking meth and knows if that route is not stopped, it's going to end in death. It's going to end in, in horrible destruction. And so we have all these passages about Scripture being so dangerous and avoiding it. And in fact, we have one today, which we'll get to. And the question is, how literal is this? Is Jesus really just saying, metaphorically, like, try to be a good person? Hold a door open for an old lady? Or is he really saying, no, look, these things are very, very dangerous for you. Or life and death. And, and you should spend a lot of time and energy working through them and thinking about them. And, and, and seeing therapists to, to get over some of these things. Um, uh, the last one example I'll give you is wealth. I won't go too far into this um, because uh, I like my wealth as much as you do. Um, Jesus says a lot of things about wealth uh, and we rationalize all of them. Jesus says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Um, I have not sold everything I have and given it to the poor and I'm probably not planning on doing it so I'm not judging you for doing it. Um, if you do, I'm kind of poor, so you can actually <coughs> give some of that to me. Um, but, but every now and then I'm, I'm nagged. How serious was he about stuff like that? Jesus actually says, don't build up treasures on earth and don't build up storehouses of wealth. And in the first century, that was very rare. Like the 1% had enough to build a barn to put stuff they didn't use in. And I would imagine what Jesus would say in that same topic today when most of us in this room, myself included, right, have storage units. We actually pay money to put things away that we don't use. I mean, this is actually a, a like, you can't get closer to an application of Jesus' statements there, right? And there's this nagging feeling, you know, how serious was he about that? I mean, how upset will he be? Will he just be like, man, you shouldn't have done that, ha ha ha? Or will he be like, I try to tell you as clear as possible, that's not what you're supposed to do. There's people dying every day, and you just had stuff stored up, just collecting dust every day. So we always have this question. It's a question, there's no answers to it. There's no easy answers. I can't give you easy answers to any of this. Again, I'm telling you, I, I fail, right? I'm not the one who has to say, you have to do all these things literally, because I'm not doing all of these things literally. But it is something we need to be aware of, right? Um, and, and try to make judgment calls on when we come to different things in the passage. On the other hand, there are things sometimes that I think we take too literally. And maybe we should look at the larger story of the Bible um, and, and interpret it in light of that. So a shameless, shameless plug. Tuesday I'm starting a Revelation class. I've taught Revelation for four years. Uh, the resource we'll be using, I've read it and reread it and um, read it over again. I'm actually friends with the author. I've emailed him back about some of the things in the book. Um, it's my favorite thing ever written about Revelation. And Tuesday evenings for the next five weeks, starting this Tuesday, we'll be having a seminar. Um, that also to say, there's been a lot of interest and I know a lot of clamoring for babysitting. Um, the church is offering complimentary books. So here is, um, we have a treasure in the room, I know, but, but here's my, my suggestion to you. The, the book itself is worth it. Um, if you can't make all five seminars, right, I would try to order the book and come to a couple. 
right? You can read the book on your own time, and it will bless you. It will bless you big time. But we'd love for you to be there and to participate as well. But with Revelation, in Revelation, you have a very violent Jesus. I mean, when I say violent, really violent. Like scary, nightmare, violent Jesus. In fact, parts of Revelation actually measure out how high the blood will roll in the streets from his enemies. And I think it's something to like 13 miles high. A lot of blood. I would faint. I don't like blood. (laughs) And what people often do is they take that very literally. Jesus is coming back. Thanks, Wes. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back to slaughter just about everybody. And actually, Christians, of course, take joy in a lot of that. We're like, finally, he's going to do what the U.S. military can't do. And we'll celebrate and cheer and, and kill all these people. I actually think that's not how Revelation should be read. I think Revelation from chapter 1 to chapter 22, the whole book, actually gives you so many clues it's hard to miss that Jesus is the exact same person as he was in the Gospels. Peaceful. Not wanting to kill people. Um, I think those statements are about judgment, not about the process of judgment. I think Jesus will get rid of all evil in the world, but I don't think he's going to do it with bombs. Because he's Jesus. Um, to, man, I hate doing this. You don't have to come to the past now. Um, in fact, I would interpret those passages, I think the final judgment, especially some of the ones described in Revelation, is going to be just the opposite of creation. What did Jesus need to create? What did Jesus and, and God the Father and the Spirit need to do to create the world? Speak. Why would we imagine that Jesus has to get his hands dirty with blood to get rid of these evil people? He upholds the whole world, right? Yet the second, it only exists because he wants it to. I think when Jesus wants to get rid of all the evil in the world, he'll do it the same way. Split second. It's his will. It's his desire. And there's no need for bodies to be piled up in the street. That's a very vivid metaphor to assure you that one day there will be judgment. I don't think the metaphor's there to tell you exactly how the judgment's going to happen, right? Again, just some examples. There's both sides. Are we taking it too literally? Are we taking it too metaphorically? And, and there's thousands of examples in the scriptures where each of us, hopefully in a community, will have to work through um, how we're going to interpret that. Now, Jesus moves on to talking about a child. Um, and uh, after this greatness argument with the disciples, um, it fits in nicely. The disciples understood half the message. And ironically, they understood the half that was most beneficial for them. I'm really good at doing that as well. Um, You get a full message, and you take the part that's like, that's really awesome for me. And you kind of forget about the other part. So they're all over this Messiah business. Because the Messiah is going to shut up a throne in Jerusalem and control the whole world. Um, And so the disciples, handpicked as 12, will constantly argue over their positions as rulers over the whole world. Right? I mean, they're about to be the president's cabinet of the entire world. Um, and so the, the inner circle is going, I'm one, you're two. This guy we might end up kicking out anyways. Um, they're arguing over positions of greatness. They understand the Messiah part, and they're excited about it. They don't understand the, the fact that the Messiah means cross. And the fact that Jesus already told them, for them too, him being Messiah means a cross. Um, means you're going to end up dying as a criminal not as an all-star celebrity political power player, right? Um, But they're arguing for status. Um, They're arguing for 
positions in the world, to move up the ladder in the world. Um, and he brings a child. This won't be the last time he uses a child as an explanation for what he wants to get across to the disciples. We've got to be careful here, though. Jesus uses child, children, other, other times. And we often, what I've found often, I listened to a couple sermons, and they all made this mistake. They imported that passage into this passage. This passage is not saying to become like a child to enter into the kingdom. That's true. There is a passage like that, and it deserves a sermon. But that's not what Mark's saying here, and that's not what Jesus is saying here. Um, here, Jesus is saying this. There's a, uh, almost a line. He says, if you want to be first, be last, be the servant. And he says, if you welcome a child, you welcome me. There's almost, you can draw that as a diagram in your mind. Welcome child is like welcoming me. Welcoming me is like welcoming the father. Okay? Here's what you need to know about children. They were not considered as cute as they are now in the first century. We often think of children, and we, the first, one of the first things that comes to our mind is innocence. They're so innocent. They don't know any better. They're dependent on us for everything. I've got a puppy. I keep him alive. I think he loves me. In the ancient world, children were thought of as annoyances. Now, there was some maternal love, part of human nature, right? But children were mainly for fathers, and they were mainly for the benefit they would provide for fathers. You want girls so you can sell them and get a nice dowry. You want boys so that they can do your work for you. I mean, this is what children were for. In fact, a 4th century Christian author, um, who's, I mean, he's Christian, very famous author, St. Augustine, uh, wrote a paragraph about infants that I read this week um, where he said that out of all human beings and possibly all creatures on the earth, they are the most unvirtuous human beings. Think about it. It's kind of true. They cry all the time. Baby never asked me how my day was. It never feeds me. Sometimes I have accidents. They don't help me. I, I don't actually have accidents. <laughs> So, so rumors get started. And so he said, you know, really, if you want to compare to creatures, they're kind of a drag until they grow up to the 12 or 13 and we can actually use them, right? This is a Christian author in the 4th century. He's real influential for most of, of theology. So they, they had no rights. That's the point of using a child here. There's no status at all. It was perfectly legal for someone in the first century to take a baby and throw him in a trash heap. It was perfectly legal for uh, poor families to take a baby and maim it and disable it and hope they can make money begging when it grows up. This is weird to us. This would not have caused anyone to blink an eye in the first century. Right? I mean, this would just be like people buying a dog and going crazy about it. But yeah, people do that, right? Um, so the point of the child is it's a person with no rights, no prestige, no status at all. And what Jesus is saying, the lesson here is, instead of being concerned about being on the top, you need to forget about that mess and start looking at the bottom and taking care of the bottom. You really want to be in business with me, and by virtue of that, be in business with my father, then you need to start working on the most vulnerable ones without rights, without voices. And unfortunately, that often means you lose status. 
occasionally, you start a nonprofit, get a best-selling book, speaking tour, and you can make a name for yourself helping people. Most of the time, um, you're going to have to take hours off your job. You might have to sacrifice some family time. I mean, this is the truth in our modern lives, right? If you really want to invest in, 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 in caring for the most vulnerable, you're not going to work 60 hours a week at your law firm. I mean, you're not going to get some of those promotions. You're not going up the ladder. You might be going down the ladder. Jesus, this is what you're in for. This is what we're going for. Um, on that note, I'd like to just comment because I think the church, um, and especially our church, I don't want to judge other churches. I want to look at our church. We have to be a place that welcomes the most vulnerable people. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday about this. Um, I've been very open. I have mental illnesses. I have panic disorder. I have generalized anxiety disorder. I have major depressive syndrome. Um, so sometimes my life is messy. Um, and the people who are close to me, family, friends, elders, sometimes they have to deal with that mess. And I know it's not great for them, right? It would be much better to have a pastor who is happy all the time and always in a great mood. might be annoying, though. As a church, though, we have to be willing to accept people who are going to make our congregation a little messy. People with severe depression don't make your lives easier. They don't make the congregation a lot easier. But if they're not welcome here, where are they going to go? We could take it further. Someone with extreme bipolar. Go on these insane manic experiences. And these insane insane, uh, depression experiences. And guess what? It's not fun for the people involved. It's messy. But if they're not welcome here, how are we calling ourselves Christians? How is this the church? To open yourself up to the most vulnerable people in the world means you're opening yourself up to pain, to loss, and to having your plans change. You can think of a family who adopts a child, who has some behavior issues, issues and emotional issues, and all this kind of baggage from the past. Inherent in adopting that child is being willing to know, I'll, I'll suffer for you. I'm okay with my life not being perfect because of you. Because I'm going to protect you say to you. And I'm not going to ignore you just so I can keep up appearances. This is a big issue. I've done work with special needs children. And what we found uh, is that most churches aren't equipped for special needs children. Um, I will say to brag on churches in our area, there are three or four churches in Sugarland and in the greater Houston area that I can name to you who do this great. Like if we ever had a good group of special needs kids, we would be hiring them as consultants. Because they integrate them into worship. They take care of them perfectly. I mean, it's awesome. Um, we're not equipped for that right now. Um, but I can say, as an executive decision, hoping that you'll all be on board, um, we would be welcome to a special needs child. I'd be welcome to have one sit in the front row and throw temper tantrum during my sermon. And I wouldn't judge the parents. I don't think you would judge the parents. I wouldn't think, man, you ruined my sermon. And I would hope you wouldn't think, man, he ruined my sermon. Where are they going to go? One of my favorite stories, actually, I was preaching at another church in Pearland. And there's a kid with Down syndrome there. And I actually knew him from a camp I'd worked at. 
and he sits in the front row every Sunday and sleeps and snores very loudly. Um, which I'm all about the spirituality of naps, so I'm, I'm on board. I'm on board a little bit. Um, but what's great is this church, it's almost like a cherished tradition to them. Like, that's his road to sleep in. He, he needs to be in the service. And I'm here like, you know what? I'm preaching. He's not listening. Might not be able to understand that much if he, if he could listen. But I think the Spirit's working in his little sea part. Now, the snoring might be more Satan, okay? <laughs> Don't know how to divvy it out. Um, all this to say, right? The church is called to welcome and be hospitable and bring into the community of faith people who are going to make our lives messy. We never want to be a church with white, middle-class people who never have a problem. And we're kind of like that right now. That's something we'll improve upon. Um, But what I can tell you is we've created already a culture where people share their problems. Um, In fact, let's just do an experiment. Please be honest with me. Raise your hand right now if you've ever had a problem, whatever kind of problem, financial, emotional, or anything like that, and someone sacrificed to help you out immediately. Just about everyone who raised their hand here um, has been here for quite a while. Um, I think that's church. I think that's church. And I don't think we need to uh, create these tribes based on who's going to ask more of us. Right? It can be difficult dealing with people in poverty. They ask for money. They might misuse it. You might be disappointed. And then they're going to ask for more money. Michelle's husband, Zach, has a heart for the poor. He's experienced this. It's hard. There are no rules, right? I mean, it's a case-by-case situation. But that's why it takes time and personal love and the patience of Christ inside of you. So he tells us, welcome the children. Um, and, and then he moves on to this unknown exorcist, which the disciples really botch up. Um, this is quickly, to say, a lesson against tribalism. A lesson against pretending... So, so let's say this and be very clear about this. This is the best church in the Southwest region of the United States. I would say the United States, but I just haven't traveled enough yet. But there are some good churches in Sugarland. Some really good churches in Sugarland. There's a church in Pearland that I'd be going to if I had never entered into the doors of FCQ. They do everything right. Everything. As a community and as individual Christians, we have to welcome that and brag on each other and not try to exclude each other because they don't have our name on it or because they don't worship the same way we do or because they don't believe exactly the same things we believe. Um, As a high school teacher, formerly high school teacher, Uh, Moving into the college world, which I've got to say, I love all of you high school teachers here. It's way better. Um, Reverend professor. um, High schoolers, what I found a lot, and I think this is kind of our Western culture, our immediate culture too, is um, since we're mainly Protestant and inside of us, even subconsciously, um, you might not know this, I recognize it a little bit. We have a Protestant ethos inside of us. Um, and Protestants, if you remember, broke from the church 
and define themselves very clearly. And then once you break from the church, that's kind of built into your DNA, which is why Protestants continue to break off and break off and break off and break off until there's now like 200,000 different Protestant groups, right? Um, it, was, it was there at the very beginning. As soon as we don't like something, we start a whole new thing. <laughs> um, Catholics in the Eastern Orthodox Church just work out their problems individually. And most of us have been told correctly the story that when the Protestant Reformation happened, there were some serious problems in the Catholic Church. What I found, though, is the story usually stops there for people. And so the language I hear in the classroom uh, with high schoolers a lot is Catholics and Christians. As if Christians were a separate category, or as if Catholics were a separate category, right? And every time I heard it, I stop what I'm doing, draw diagrams on the board, and be like, Protestants, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, all Christians. They're not two separate categories. Um, what gets me, actually, is that Catholics, we use the language. They're like, I'm Catholic, not Christian. And I'm like, seriously? Have you capitulated to our arrogance? You're just going to use the language now? Um, a little known fact, the Catholic Church, right after the Protestant Reformation, had their own huge reformation. Almost everything that you hear from history bad about the Catholic Church is gone now. Um, you still might not agree with some of their doctrines, but I don't. I'm not a Catholic. Um, but Catholics are Christians. And Catholics do amazing work for the kingdom. And the Catholic Pope, Pope Francis, is not my spiritual leader. But he's on the top five of spiritual leaders that I respect. And I have no commitment to him, right? I'm never going to get in trouble for disagreeing with him, for doing something opposite of him. But everything he writes, I read. And I pray over and I try to take after his, his heart that's like Christ. Um, Eastern Orthodox is a whole other story. We're not really familiar with that at all. But they're a beautiful, um, beautiful part of Orthodox Christianity. Um, so we, can't, we just can't be tribal, right? Does that make sense? Just because someone's on the FC cube doesn't mean they're not in the kingdom and they're not doing awesome stuff. Um, just because someone doesn't believe the exact thing that you're doing doesn't mean they're not doing awesome stuff. We need to be, the word is ecumenical, which means we need to brag on our brothers and sisters, even if we have big differences with them. When they do good stuff, we need to highlight it. We need to share it with the world. We need to help them. We need to focus more on what unites us than less on what uh, divides us. Jesus' argument for this is two steps. He gives a pragmatic argument, which is this, people doing these powerful works in my name are going to have much less of an opportunity to speak evil of me later. This is pop psychology. Right? The more you start serving, like say in a food bank, the more you're going to realize how important that food bank is. And the less likely you're going to be later on at some point to be like, I hate all food banks, they're a waste of time. Does that make sense? He says, if these people are working in my name, I'm not really worried about them returning. They're only getting more and more locked into the, the, the mission. And then the second one is a promise. He says, look, if you try to stop them, you're taking away the reward. How dare you? You give a cup of cold water in my name, and I want to reward that person. And if you were to ever stop somebody from giving someone a cool, cup of cold water, um, I might have words with you later. I might have words. Why did you stop them? They didn't have your membership card. You didn't know their name. They were Catholic. Um, I don't think that's the church that Jesus desired. Fortunately, it's a church that we have right now, but um, I'm very encouraged by ecumenical conversations between churches. 
Finally, and we'll close up our sermon with these uh, commands and, and thoughts about sin. Um, lots of cutting things off. Um, <coughs> we read this, and I, I think we appropriately respond in horror. It's not nice stuff to read. It's not stuff you want to do. Um, Jesus' point here, I don't think Jesus, again, so here's our literal metaphor. I don't think Jesus intends this to be literal. The early disciples didn't take this literally. Now, in the 3rd and 4th centuries, some monastic monks took this literally. They would castrate themselves. They would cut off arms. They'd blind themselves. Things of that nature. That's a very majority, a small minority of the church, though. Most of the church <coughs> has said, this is simply a serious warning against sin. This is trying to get you to understand, this is a war... And sin will lead to your destruction. It's not something to play around with. If at all possible, do whatever you can do. Make any sacrifice you can make to avoid this. Because it's going to trap you into a cycle of death that you won't be able to get out of. Although, I say that, it doesn't seem literal. Oh man, but I think about this, and I think it's still true. Like if these were your, your choices... To go to hell or to, to take a spoon to your eye? Literally, which one would be better? I think the eye one. I mean, I, I don't, again, I don't think it's being literal, but I think it's true. Um, what I would counsel people, and I actually had a kid come to me, so a uh, high schooler, uh, 15 years old, looking at pornography, um, which uh, pretty much every 15 year old boy, don't be surprised. Um, I've never had a conversation with a 13 to 16 year old boy where they started sharing stuff with me where eventually there was some kind of pornography problem not mentioned. Um, it's just the world we're living now. And he had read this text and he was a very committed Christian. He, I mean, he really was upset that he had this struggle and wanted to do exactly what Jesus said about it. And, and I don't know, I don't think his parents would love him, but he was like, just like, cut my eye out. And I was like, now here's what I would suggest to you. I think there are some steps we can try <laughs> before we get to the I thing. Um, let's put some software in your computer. Let's see how that works for a couple months. Um, if that is still an issue, let's take your computer out of your room. Give it to your parents. Have only access to it when people are watching you. Um, you know, after some of these steps, we can think about the I thing. Even then, I'm, I'm thinking we can probably find more steps, right? Um, you have to remember, Jesus has already, has already said in Mark's Gospel that it's not your hand that's causing you to sin. It's, it's your heart. You can take one eye out, and I guarantee you the left eye will be just as lustful. So when Jesus says statements like this, I think he's, he's, he's being somewhat very real in that you have to make sacrifices and that it's worth those sacrifices because we're not on vacation. This is a war. And in war you make sacrifices. And in war you choose a team and you ride with that team until you die. You don't waver. Um, but I think we've also got to be aware, right? Um, and I think Jesus is very aware. The hand's not making you sin. The eye is not making you sin. It's a heart issue.
Work on that heart. Work on that heart and see where that gets you. Point well taken, though, from Jesus. Sin serious. Again, not, not like breaking the speed limit. Which I don't know. I'm, I'm probably offending some people. I don't think it's that serious of <laughs> a legal activity. Um, murdering someone, I would be like, yes, off limits. That's way over the line of the law and ethics. Um, but with sin, when it comes to sin, I think Jesus is very clear. Like, And this is why I think when Jesus talks about sin like this, it's not a mean thing. right? It's not a, you dirty sinner, pagan, you disgust me. Enjoy your life of sin. I think it's a, a mother concerned for her parent. Saying, this is going to destroy you. You've got to stop. You've got to find some way out of this. Because it will destroy you from the inside out. So Jesus gives these instructions to disciples in this context of the kingdom breaking into the world. Of, of Jesus designing to do a new thing in the world. Um, and he's got to get it through his community's minds and hearts and souls. That's going to involve them serving the least. It's going to involve them not isolating themselves from other people on the mission for small, silly things. And it's going to involve them taking it very seriously. Um, waking up every day and not thinking this is a vacation. I've been forgiven, so I'll just accumulate some stuff. Enjoy my time until I die. Um, I think Jesus much rather has this warfare worldview where we wake up and we go, there are forces battling today. And Jesus wants peace and love and, and God's glory in the world right now. And there are serious evil forces resisting that right now. And what side will I be on today? And what sacrifices will I have to make to be on that side today? And, and, and what vulnerable people can I go after to be on that side today? And we're all on a journey. We're all in different places. And Jesus is not scared of that. You've got to remember, this is the same Jesus who says this, who is, is so gentle to sinners. This is not the Jesus who says, cut off your hand if you sin, and then if you sin goes, you couldn't find a hacksaw, there are three lows within 15 miles. This is the Jesus who goes to a woman in adultery and is gentle and loving. And says, did you think I was going to condemn you? No. What I want for you is just not to do this anymore. It's not good for you. Go and sin no more. I'm not here to cast stones. So when we fall, because we, we will fall, I fall, we'll all fall, um, we can't have passages like this bring us into a, a worldview where Jesus is angry at us. But maybe it would be okay for a worldview where Jesus is concerned for us, like a loving father or a loving brother. He says, man, there's some serious things going on today. And you need to, you need to watch yourself. You need to be careful. Because I'm concerned about you. And I need you on my team for this. Um, and so if you approach the table, I would ask that you keep these things in mind. We, we come to the table uh, to uh, celebrate Christ's sacrifice. Um, if you are here and not a believer, you've never really made that commitment to follow Christ, uh, we'd love to talk to you about what that looks like. Um, there's a difference between coming to the table and between starting to practice the Christian disciplines personally that will, will start you off in a life following Christ. Um, 
the way our sanctuary is built up, we can't really have an altar call and stay up here and pray with you. It would be awkward for everybody. Um, uh, I'm going to ask one of our elders who's here today to go into the hallway uh, after and during communion. And they'd be more than happy to talk to you, and I'd be more than happy to talk to you as well. Um, for the rest of you, you're invited to the table. Um, this is our chance to commit ourselves to Christ once again every week, to celebrate how incredibly good he's been to us, and to be commissioned into the world to keep doing what we're doing. So let's pray together.